Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message really blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions or want more information on our church, please visit www.theporchchurch.tv. Uh, my name is Andrew Devaney. I think some of you might recognize me, others of you not. I'm a, I'm a guest here today. And uh, some of you guys might know me as uh, the founder of As One Ministries, a uh, ministry that I started in, in Uganda, and we, we partner with the, with the porch. And um, it's, it's been a huge blessing for me to be able to come here and share my story and share the story of what God is doing in Uganda with you guys. And I was just talking to the, uh, someone in the back, and I was saying, but I think even more special is it, is it feels kind of like a friendship more than anything. And so uh, getting to be here and getting to share with you is uh, a great blessing to me. And so today I'm going to be sharing uh, in this last uh, part of the series of Jesus Is. Uh, it's a six-week series over the seven I am statements. I'm still trying to figure out the math on that one. I was giving Will a hard time about it. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so we're in, in week six, and today we're talking about Jesus, the true vine. So if you'll jump in with me, John chapter 15, uh, that's, that's where we'll start. And while you're getting there, if someone needs Bibles, I, I think to raise your hands, and there's people in the back that will get you a Bible. Anybody need a Bible? Raise your hand. They'll help you. Okay. Um, and as you're getting there, I, I just want to say this. Um, a couple weeks ago, I, I was in Uganda, in a very rural village in Uganda over Easter week. Um, and it was, a, it was a really special time for me. And I was thinking about this as worship was happening this morning. I didn't plan to share about this. But the thing that hit me this morning and as I've kind of studied this scripture and as I come to share with you this morning, is that, uh, like, Jesus is alive. And that, that's what, what Easter is all about. And that's what resurrection is all about. And the church historically has not just seen Easter as, like, a one-day celebration, but, like, 50 days in the liturgical calendar. And I think there's something so formative and so powerful about that, that we actually go on expressing the resurrection life of Jesus. It's not just a one-time event, but it continues on all through history and on today. And so that us, we are actually anchored into that story, into that resurrection life. And God is amongst us and alive today, and he's actually closer than the breath of our mouth and the skin on our body. And the reality of that is that it changes everything. And so the reason I bring up being in Uganda, as I was sitting there in this little rural church with a, with a bunch of people who suffer from extreme poverty and they're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And I, and I sit here today and I think to myself, like all across the world, and no matter what our background, people who suffer from poverty, a, a, a society that struggles with anxiety and depression, and, and we have things that we're carrying in today, very heavy things. I, you know, as I just even sit and talk with people, losing loved ones, trying to sell our homes, trying to figure out what we should do with our careers, figuring out if what we're doing means anything to what God, and, and has any connection to with what God is doing in the world. And the thing that I want to say is, yes, it does, and God is amidst us, and God is, is with us. 
and he is present. And so as we jump into this text, I just want to start by praying, and we'll just open up our hearts to the Lord. Jesus, we love you. And we adore you. And like the psalmist says, my soul pants for you, my body longs for you in dry and weary place. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And we believe that resurrection, that the life that you offer us is something we can participate in here and now. And that you are here and that you are working amongst us. And we ask that you would just surprise us. That you would speak to us and that you would open up every fiber and every ounce of our life and our soul to you. God, would we, would we find you here today? Let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be holy and pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So John 15. It's been a while since I asked you to open it, so hopefully you're there. Um, if you guys wouldn't mind standing for the reading of the scripture, it's something that I really like to do. I've done it in the past when I'm here. Uh, I think that there's just something powerful to, like with our bodies, acknowledge our just reverence to the scriptures. And so... The Gospel of John. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be complete in you and that your joy may be complete. You can sit down. God is alive and he's inviting us into his life. Um, I think it stands out quite clear, you know, if you listen to the cadence or the rhythm of this text, what Jesus is asking us, what the invitation is, what he is calling us into, and that is to remain. In the Greek, the word is meno. Say it with me, meno. Meno, and it means, it means to remain, it means to abide, it means to make your home in. 
to dwell. And it's this idea that fills the New Testament and it's repeated 11 times in just this portion of the text that we read. And, and so to get a better picture of what Jesus is talking about, I want to take a step back. And I want to try to set the stage for what I think is going on here and the moment that he's having with his disciples. He's finishing up his Last Supper and he's giving this farewell discourse. Sermon after sermon, the, the chapter before, I think you guys just talked about, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is, is inviting his disciples into the reality that they can participate in him. And so he's sitting there in this intimate moment with his disciples. And what would be happening right now is that he would be taking the cup and he would bless it. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was part of the people of God, part of Israel, and so he followed, followed Jewish custom. And he knew Torah. And he knew the Jew, Jewish customs and blessings. And so as he's, as he's grabbing this cup of wine, he blesses it. In the Hebrew, he would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu. Melech ha'olam bore pri hagafen. And it means that Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. And then he says, I am the true vine. And the disciples are hooked. And the disciples, similar to Jesus, understanding Israel, understanding God's covenant to Israel, would have had all of these ideas of the vineyard and Israel being the vineyard in their mind as they hear Jesus say, I am the true vine. Psalm 80. The psalmist writes, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations. And you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. This picture of, of Israel being brought out of the house of slaves in Egypt. Brought into the promised land. And planted there. And that God through, through the promise that he made to Abraham, has these divine plans for Israel. But this is how Israel's story goes. Isaiah chapter 5, I think it'll be on the screen. You can turn there quickly if you'd like. Isaiah writes, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. Loved one had a vineyard on a fertile soil. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest of vines, the best of vines. He built a watchtower in it and then cut down and cut out a wine press as a well. Then he took for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit or bad grapes. Now you dwellers of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, the Lord says. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad ones? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take, it away, take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. 
I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. The people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. Looked for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. And this is way oversimplified, but the story that we get of Israel is that Israel failed at what they were called to do. Even in the book of Jeremiah, he says, you have forsaken the spring of living water and you have built your own cisterns, cisterns that can't even hold water. That Israel has forsaken their God and Israel had this quite simple calling for what they were supposed to be. And so if you are a Jew and, and, you're, and you're these disciples sitting there, you have, you have this understanding of what Israel was supposed to do and what Israel was supposed to be. And they were supposed to do these things to help keep them oriented towards God. So when they'd stay oriented towards God, they'd take care of the things they were supposed to. And so for Israel, if you're, if you're thinking like a Jew, three responsibilities, very simply. They were to live in the land that God had given them. They were to obey Torah. They were to obey the Ten Commandments, the law, the book of Leviticus, the stuff that we don't really like to read because it doesn't make any sense to us. And then they were supposed to worship in the temple. And that by, by committing themselves to obedience of those practices, they would stay oriented towards Yahweh. And they would bear the fruit that Yahweh desired for them. And they would be a part of Yahweh's plan to bring blessing to all the nations. And what Jesus says in this moment is that he is the perfect example of Israel. He is the quintessential figure of Israel. He is the king that they longed for. He is the Messiah that they desired. And that all life, all goodness, all fruit is actually found in Him. Are you guys with me this morning? He stands in the place of the nations of Israel. Like a tree finds its nourishment in its trunk. Or like grapes find their nourishment from the vine. Or like any flower, any plant finds all of its nourishment in the soil and in the roots. Jesus says that if you want to bear the fruit of the kingdom, you must be planted in the true vine. And this is not only open to the disciples, but to every single one of us here. So moving away from uh, some of the theoretical Moving into like, so what does this actually look like? What does abiding actually look like? What, what does this whole idea of Jesus being the true vine mean for me today as I live in Centennial Aurora in the greater Denver area? I think this is the question that we should be asking. This is how we should approach the scriptures. And I want to talk about two main points. I'm going to spend a lot more time on one than the other. But I want to talk about what does it mean to abide? 
What does it mean to meno? And all over the New Testament, there's so many different ideas for it. Abiding, remaining, being planted. Paul, John, the writers of the New Testament, they always talk about an in Christ, an in Christ, an in Christ. Paul even references prayer without ceasing. Dallas Willard, uh, one of my favorite philosophers, theologians, talks about the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs. So he's making a big claim. One of the greatest issues that he sees in the world today is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That the first step of discipleship, that the first step of being a follower of Jesus, that like the, when you strip it all away and the bare bones of it, the entryway into it actually looks like just spending time with Jesus. What did the disciples do when, when Jesus called them, come and follow me? He, they followed him, and one of the first things that they did was they sat around a table with him and had a meal with him. That for any of us here, the ABCs of discipleship, the, the first thing that we need to learn how to do is actually be with Jesus. And so that's how I will describe abiding, is learning to be with Jesus. Dallas Willard in his book goes on to kind of unpack this issue that we have in the church today. And he would say so many of us grew up in traditions where either one, we learned how to keep a bunch of rules. And so we became what he would call law followers. So we knew how to look a certain way and do a certain thing and to kind of fit in with the in crowd. But we actually never learned how to know Jesus and to be with Jesus. And the second thing that he would say is it's, it's become like an uh, intellectual ascent. Christianity in the Western world has become limited to just accepting a bunch of ideas. And so we, believe, we say we believe these things, but they have no ramifications on the way that we live. And so I, I, I'm going I'm to argue that I actually think that what Jesus is calling us into as we learn to be with Jesus is taking on Jesus' lifestyle. What it looks like to take on the Jesus life, the kingdom life, to abide in Christ, is to learn to participate in the lifestyle of Jesus. This, like I said, is the first step of Christian discipleship, but probably one of the hardest things for most of us here. Jesus in the scriptures was always sneaking away to go spend time with the Father. He'd wake up early in the morning, he'd be with the crowd, and then he'd just go. Because he knew that his life, that the wellspring of all life, that the source of everything was available to him and that he could connect to it. And I think this is the example that's being given to us. This is the opportunity, I'll say it again, the invitation that we have. So I think where we begin, you know, I'll say this for most of us, because I'm just going to admit, like, preaching this sermon, this is like I'm preaching to myself. This is probably one of the harder things that I struggle with. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word for repent is shuv. Shuv, say it, shuv. 
And shuv actually means to return. And so the God that we love and the God that we worship is a very gracious God. And the scriptures say he's gracious and he's, he's slow to anger and full of love and compassion. And what he will always do is he will always take back a contrite and repentant heart. He will always take back a heart that wants to return to him. And so I do not think that there is any better thing that we can do than to just put ourselves back towards God. Those of us, as we, as we kind of have done this Christian thing for quite a while, and we begin to wander over here and wander over here and forget what would really be our first love, the best thing that we can do is return to God himself. There was a gentleman uh, in the medieval days, I think it was 16th century, named Nicholas Herman. And he grew up um, kind of nominally Christian. And he was in the army. And while he was in the army, he had this radical experience, this life-changing experience with God that, that drastically changed everything. So long story short, he was able to leave the army and he ended up becoming a Carmelite monk. So he lived, lived, moved into a monastery, and his name became Brother Lawrence. Has anybody in here ever heard of Brother Lawrence? The idea of the practice of the presence of God. He wrote this book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And, and Brother Lawrence wanted to give his whole life to figuring out how to be conscious and aware of God in everything that he's doing. If we say that God is closer than the skin on our bodies, than the breath of our mouth, then what we have to do is pull back ourselves and learn to become conscious and aware of God in everything that we do. And for, for uh, Brother Lawrence, this was not just the beginning, but this was the end. This was the whole of it. That what we actually have the opportunity to do is to be with God in all of our circumstances. Whether at work, whether we're driving around, whether we're, for him, living in a monastery, he was a cook. He did not have this crazy, special, sacred vocation where he was like a professional Christian, like a pastor or something. That was a joke. Um, but he was a cook. And so he wanted to find and give his orientation, just like Israel was supposed to, give his orientation to God in all things that he did. And so this is, this is a quote from his book, The Practice of the Presence of God. He says, nor is it needful that we should have great things to do. Brother Lawrence found deep contentment, something I think we're all really, really searching for. Deep contentment in learning to practice the presence of God, to become fully conscious and fully aware of God in whatever circumstance he was in. That, my friends, this is actually the whole of it. 
This is actually the beginning and the end of our Christian journey that we get to dwell with God and through Christ we have access to the Father. The problem, like I alluded to earlier, is that for so many of us in the modern world, so many of us in the Western world, I think just spending time with God might be one of the hardest things to do. I even, I remember a conversation that I had with a friend not too long ago, and he's been a Christian his whole life, and we were on a walk, and he's like, dude, I am really struggling just like figuring out like what God wants me to do, what I should do with my life. I don't feel all that connected to God, and I was just like, so have you been praying recently? And he was like, no. And I said, what, what about like spending time in scripture? And he said, no. I was like, any time for just silence and reflection? Not really. We expect that we would have the results and the fruit of the kingdom without ever being attached to the vine. And this is the reality for so many of us. Me, deeply included. Dallas Willard, in in that same book, The Divine Conspiracy, he over and over talks about kind of consciousness of God, practicing the presence of God like a compass. And that a compass always returns to true north. And that the great goal of the Christian faith is to always return ourselves to the true north. To always reorient ourselves back towards God no matter what the circumstance. And I think that we, for the most of us here, we probably have something else that's kind of our true north. I don't know, um, does anybody have a smartphone? Raise your hand if you have a smartphone. It's amazing. I sometimes wonder, I tell this to my fiance often, I don't actually know how it's possible to be a Christian and have a smartphone, but um, I, <clears throat> there was a recent study that came out. I think the statistic was that on average, people with smartphones touch their phone 2,517 times a day. And on the, that's just the average. On the high side, it's more like 4,000. On the low side, it was more like just 1,000. And so just think of your lives. Think of the times where you just have like this little dull moment. You've been busy. You've been driving. You've been taking care of your kids. You've been off doing this. And you have this dull moment. What is the first thing that you do? You go for the phone. I, I was, when I, again, I, I probably talk about these things more. I annoy my fiance a lot by talking about this stuff. But um, we were sitting at a coffee shop and I had my phone sitting in front of me. And I just said to her, what if I had to sit here for a day, maybe 24 hours, and my phone would buzz and buzz and buzz, but I was never allowed to touch it. <laughs> I was like, I think I would like start twitching and like be on the ground <laughs> having withdrawals. And what's sad is that like this is just the human reality in our culture. We're so addicted to our phones. And the second that we have spare time, it's like our compass north, it's the first thing that we go to. Or entertainment. Or, or you name it. We have, we have access to infinity, like just at our fingertips. And I just wonder, like if the people of God, those who call themselves Christians, instead of being devoting so much of their time and their apprenticeship and their discipleship to their phones, we would actually give it to Jesus. If he is who he says he is, and he says he's the true vine, and he's alive, and he's here, and he's with us, what if we had the audacity to try that.
And so really practically, I think that looks like, you know, you don't just come to a point where you practice God's presence all the time in your life. You know, it's not just, you don't just walk out of here today and it's something that you'll do because you heard a sermon or something. But it's like habits. It's the habits that we have that shape and form the things that we love. There was this author that named Jamie, James K.A. Smith who came out with a book called You Are What You Love. And he says that our habits, small and big, things that we do implicitly or things that we do intentionally actually shape and form the things that, that we love. And so if I was to ask you if you love your cell phone, you'd probably say no. You'd probably be like, nah, it's kind of annoying. I don't really like it. But your desires show something quite different. That if the second you have a spare moment, you like have the itch to go to your phone, that says something about what you truly desire in your heart. But the opposite is true that if I was to ask you guys if you love God, And if, and if you loved Jesus, you would probably say yes. But my guess is, if I was to look at your habits, the things that, you know, make up your life, that for most of us here, that, that's not something that would be quite as obvious. Hurts a little bit. Um, and so we have to look at this almost like I'm going I'm to use the idea of training versus trying. Like trying would look like what I do when I want to be a runner. <laughs> that I actually, there was a point in life when I did run a little bit and ran half marathon and I kind of came to enjoy the running, but afterwards I stopped and I've never gotten back into running. But I so want to have the fruits of what it's like to be a runner, like to be skinny and uh, things like that and to be in shape. But I'll try to go for a run and I'll run like for like I'm doing this thing where I'll try like three or four minutes, like a couple times a week, and I will be like dead tired by the end of it. And I do not like it, and I do not want to do it. But I think prayer, scripture, fasting, silence, solitude, these, these habits, these disciplines that actually help orient us towards God, they're kind of the same thing. It's sort of the same deal. Like a lot of us will leave here today and probably really just want to run out and be like, I'm going to read the whole Bible in like three weeks. And it's not going to happen. It's actually, if you did it, it probably wouldn't change much of who you are because it'd be like just a quick fix. But what I'm curious to know is if we're willing to kind of put our everyday habits on the line. If we're willing to maybe at breakfast, lunch, dinner, before bed, maybe just sit and read a scripture for three or four minutes and meditate on it. Maybe every time we think to check our phone, we just stop for a second and we recognize who the source of all life is and who is with us and who is amongst us. Maybe we just try on occasion, maybe on just Saturdays before your kids get up, 10 minutes of silence where you pray and you try to listen to God. Maybe, just maybe, this would radically affect your connection to the vine, to the source of all life. Maybe. And then I want to talk about my second point, which is bearing fruit. Uh, I, I think for most of us, and I'm the king of this, I love results. And I love to see my life 
exemplify the results of the kingdom. And so I think since, become, since the time I became a Christian, I have, you know, like I, I had a pretty, I would say kind of a, a more um, radical conversion, for lack of a better word. And I really changed significantly. And then, you know, before you knew it, I was always in my scripture and people in my high school were like, Andrew, you're becoming such a good guy. And then I went to college and I got involved in campus ministry. I got really involved in church, started going to Africa, went to seminary. Everybody's like, dude, you're totally doing it right. But I will tell you what, you can have the results of the kingdom and the fruit of the kingdom, what looks to be that way without ever being attached to the king himself. It's like a quick fix. And, and, I'm, and I'm anxious and I'm hurried and I'm not content and I want more and I don't want this and I don't know what I want to do with this because I'm not truly attached to the vine. And the first thing that Jesus says about fruit in John 15, I just love this, is he says, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes. The whole idea behind practicing these things, by the way, is not about what you're doing, but it's about what God does in you. And same thing with fruit. Fruit is not really about what you do, but what about, about what God does in you and through you. Trees don't, like, grow themselves. And fruit does not grow itself. And plants do not grow themselves. And so I think so many of us, again, as I was praying this morning, I kind of shifted some of the things. Like I think so many of us desire the, the life of the kingdom of heaven. We desire the fruit of the kingdom of heaven without ever really being attached to the king, without ever really being attached to the vine. And for some of us who has been at this Christian journey for quite a while, maybe we've actually done the things that we think we're, you know, that we're supposed to do. And it feels like we really don't have the fruit necessary. Well, like I read in the scripture, he prunes. He cuts off every branch that does not bear fruit, and he prunes that which is bearing fruit, which essentially means he cuts it back so that it can strengthen its branches and it can hold more fruit. And so for some of you, maybe life doesn't actually look like the way you want it to. And you're not necessarily bearing the fruit that you wish you did. This is kind of like been my story the last six months. I, I started the new year reading the scripture and I've almost been trying to read it weekly since. And it's funny that I'm preaching it because I have never felt like any point in my life that God is continuing to cut away all of these results that I've built and all of this fruit that I've done on my own. Because you want to know why? I truly believe that the scripture is real. And that God desires for us to bear the fruit of life in him. Not just the stuff that we can construct on our own. And I also believe that if we want that kind of life, if we want that kind of fruit, it is actually going to be a painful process sometimes. Because there's a lot of garbage that i got to get rid of. I'm sure there's a lot of garbage in your life that you need cut out. So to end, I want to... I want to talk, I want to read this quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He uses the same idea when talking about a house. I think they'll put it on the screen, but it says, imagine yourself a living house. God.
the Apostle John in his letter First John says, I have no greater desire than to see my children walking in the truth. And I think for me, as I'm here, as I've developed this friendship with you, I really would have no greater desire than to see this community walk in this truth. That the good life is not actually something that you have to construct on your own. Your future is not something that you have to construct on your own. But you place yourself before Jesus day in and day out. You practice his presence in all circumstances. You pray without ceasing. And I just can't even imagine what God would do through this community. I can't even imagine. But it starts with every single one of us taking this to heart and believing that it's real and it could actually change everything about your life. If we want to bear the fruits of the kingdom, we must root our lives in the true vine. Amen? I'm going to invite Will, and I'm going to invite Michelle and Todd up here, uh, the Howells. And uh, there they are. And as some of you guys know, they're, they're going to be, tra- Michelle's going to be traveling to Uganda here in uh, just like a month, almost a little over a month. And I, uh, I would love for this community to pray for her. Mackenzie's going to be going too. Mackenzie helps lead worship. She decided not to come today. <laughs> actually, she's traveling. Um, and I wanted to see if some of you guys, actually, I would love if it was actually all of you, would come up and we would lay hands on Michelle and we would pray for her. We would pray for Todd. And we, we would pray for the step of faith that they're taking. Um, here. And what not a more beautiful way to be the church than this. And if, if you're out there, feel free to raise a hand and just put it out. Um, yeah, I, I, I think this is a beautiful picture. So Andrew, for leading us in that. <clears throat> As he mentioned, you're welcomed and encouraged to come up front to lay hands on to pray for encouragement. Um, Michelle and Todd were sharing just a little bit that as they prepare for this trip that there's been some stressors at home, and so we want to lift up and pray for those things. But uh, regardless, this is a history and a tradition in our faith. And so uh, if you are a Christian here, it would be appropriate that you would just extend your arms as a visible sign of conveying your desire for the Holy Spirit to come into this moment. And as we pray together, uh, we're just all going to do that together. So Heavenly Father, God, we're mindful of your presence in this place, not only because we've worshiped and because we've heard your word preached, God, but because you're with us and you're in us. You are indeed building a house to live in within ourselves. And so we come to you now on behalf of Michelle and of Todd and of Kenzie, and as they prepare to go on an adventure, God, to be uh, ambassadors and missionaries uh, from our congregation to go and serve the people of Uganda, God, that you would be about your business within that that you would be building a house and a castle, something even greater than they could understand within themselves, and that they would bring back stories of encouragement and excitement that would uh, ignite us into being involved in the work that you're doing uh, overseas through As One. Heavenly Father, we do pray, even now as they prepare, as plans come into place, as things be made known, God, that, uh, that, that you would simply give them the grace and the courage to prepare. 
to nurture these remaining weeks that they have to prepare their three young girls for this adventure and this trip, and as they have family coming in to help God, that you would just knit all of those situations together, that it would come together perfectly. While we pray for Michelle as she's on the trip and no doubt missing her family and at the same time being excited, God, we pray for Todd who gets to remain here and to be the faithful presence within his home. God, ask that you would give him grace and strength and encouragement to weather that season and to be able to celebrate with Michelle not only while she's gone but also when she comes back. God, as I've made mention, the, the girls, three young girls all in school are, are going through some stuff as well, God, and we believe that this is spiritual in every essence of the word. And so, God, by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you come and fill their home? Would you equip anxieties to be gone and depression to be gone? Would you enable and equip your spirit to be a spirit of love and a presence in their home that unites them together and that this could be an adventure that we all go on together, even though only mom is the one to go? And God, as we go, as we follow your word to go and make disciples of all nations in all places, God, would you just pour out a measure of grace and blessing back onto the Howells, back onto Kenzie as they give of their time and their resources and of even the most precious moments with their families, God, that it would be rendered in service to your kingdom and that that would be an encouragement not only to us, but our brothers and sisters in Uganda and all of the world together as we do that. Heavenly Father, this is a commissioning. We are grateful and excited for this trip, and we're even more grateful and excited for the times in which they return. God, we demonstrate this by laying on of hands and by asking that your Holy Spirit would unite us together as a family of faith and that it would now come to rest on Michelle and on Todd and on Ailish and on Jillian and on all the family and all the cousins and on Kenzie as well. Heavenly Father, would you do all this by your strength, by your name, by your power, and in the name of your Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in the strong and mighty name of Jesus and all God's kids agreed together and said, amen. Thank you so much. You guys can find your seats. And as we wind up this time together, we're going to be talking in the upcoming weeks about ways that you can partner and equip their family. We're going to be preparing some meals for them while they're gone. And I don't have a link quite ready for you yet, but you'll be able to see that in the weekly email uh, and on our social media. So if you don't follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, or we don't have your email, please do that so that we can uh, equip you to do that. Uh, also, you may or may not know, as we've talked about this trip, that there is a significant financial burden for it. And while she's ready to go for the trip, that's not a, a withhold out for them. Uh, you may feel inclined to give in that direction. We'd ask that you just specify that in the memo line and we'll make sure uh, that it gets to them and to their family as they prepare to go on this trip. I'm grateful for Andrew sharing this morning. What a fantastic message, fantastic scripture. What a great way to end together as we commission and go out. They're not leaving until May 14th, so we have some more time to encourage them and we'll do that as appropriate. But for right now, as we end, I'm just going to invite you to stand as we sing one more song. Can hold.
Oh